Hello and welcome to Trigonometry. I'm Francis Foster. I'm Constantine Kissin. And this is a show for you if you want honest conversations with fascinating people. And it does not get any more fascinating than the man we have back for you today. He was one of the people who predicted that Donald Trump would be elected in 2016. And he's got an interesting take on it today. Jim Rickards, welcome back to Trigonometry. Thank you, Constantine. Thank you, Francis. Great to be with you again. It's great to have you back. Why don't we not beat around the bush and get straight to it? Uh, Donald Trump, according to various polls, is down about 10 to 15 points in the polls. Uh, There's obviously all sorts of things going on. Um, A lot of people, even the people who were saying he would win uh, four years ago, are now backing away from that prediction. What do you make of that situation and who do you think is going to win as we sit here recording this uh, mid-October? Yeah, I can't imagine there were very many people who said Trump would win four years ago backing away because there were only five of us. It was Pat Cadell, Steve Bannon, uh, me, Michael Moore, believe it or not, is far left, but he was smart enough to see what was coming and uh, one or two others. Donald Trump didn't think he was going to win. Melania was very upset on election. She's like, what? I got to be first lady. By the way, she's been a fabulous first lady. So all credit to her, but she was as shocked as anyone. But no, basically nobody saw it coming. Uh, but in the meantime, uh, Trump's had a lot of success, a lot of controversy, obviously always the center of attention. Uh, so there are far more people today who were willing to stand up and say, yeah, I'm, I'm with Trump, I'm voting for Trump, et cetera. Uh, and, and they, in this cycle, the 2020 cycle, uh, you're absolutely right, Constantine, they were saying that they thought Trump would win. Now they're all running for cover. Uh, it's the typical Washington approach, you know, why, why, um, why provide leadership when you can run and crawl in a hole? Um, and Republicans are worse than Democrats. Uh, at least Democrats, you would expect them to say Trump's going to lose, but the Republicans are, um, are turning tail. Um, I took some comfort from that because my forecast, and I, I want to be clear, it's model based. I, you know, isn't everybody's forecast model based? So the answer is yes, but they have pretty bad models. Uh, my models have worked a lot better. Um, so it's model based, you know, you don't get very far in this business going with your gut instinct or your preference that has uh, nothing to do with it. But, um, says that Trump was, was, was going to win, but I was getting a little nervous because there were a lot of people who agreed with me, but just in the, in the, literally in the last five days, uh, I'm isolated again, which is great. Uh, I'm, I, I feel more comfortable being out on a limb. Uh, that tells me I've got this right. So we'll see what happens. It's going to be close. I would never dispute the fact that it's going to be close. And if you're an investor or someone who needs to prepare for all scenarios, and that's always a good idea, you can't rule out the fact that Biden would win. I could give you a whole, you know, playbook as to what would happen if Biden wins, but you got to call it like you see it right now. I've got Trump, um, uh, Trump winning. Um, I would like to say on election night, he'll, he'll certainly win on election night, but the problem is, and this is a big deal. Uh, the election won't be over. Um, I like the way they do it in the UK. They have well-run elections, good exit polling, and they actually declare winners based on the exit polls. And then they, they count the votes. And, but uh, it, it's quick and it's a very good track record. The United States is anything but. Uh, and this year is going to be much, much worse. Um, I, I don't know how much you want to get into it. Um, you know, I, I, I travel around the world a lot and I run into you know, foreign, um, you know, media and uh, analysts and just everyday people. And they always say, you know, Jim, we don't understand U.S. politics. I say, well, that's okay. Americans don't understand it either. Uh, But (laughs) you can take people through it. So there's a lot behind the forecast. Uh, I'm not sure 
which way you want to go or how deeply you want to go. Well, Jim, before we get into the, the, the nitty gritty of it, which we do want to get into, because one of the things I found fascinating you talking about four years ago was how the betting markets were and, and the, the forecasting was based on amounts of money as opposed to numbers of people. That was a fascinating thing. But before we go back to that, a lot of people will be watching this going, look, Jim Rickards, he's a conservative Republican. Of course, he's going to say Donald Trump's going to win. This is just, uh, you know, this is what he wants to happen. And that's why he's predicting it. What do you say to those people? Uh, well, I am, in fact, a conservative Republican. I think I'm more of a pragmatist than a, you know, a, a, a by the book conservative. But, you know, I'm a, let's say I'm a, a right leaning uh, conservative. Uh, but uh, I don't get paid and I don't have any success if I'm wrong. Uh, so from a, you know, pr- serving the audience, providing a newsletter service, providing interviews like this, uh, banging the drum for one side or the other, just because I may have a preference, uh, doesn't get me anywhere. It doesn't, uh, increase your, it doesn't improve your reputation. It doesn't enhance your standing. It doesn't serve the audience. So, um, and by the way, in 2012, I predicted Obama would win. I didn't vote for Obama, but um, I, I said he would win. But and all of Wall Street was was all in for Romney. You know, this guy, Paul Singer, of uh, Elliott Investing, and many others. No, no reason to to single out uh, Paul Singer. Uh, they were certain Romney was going to win. And uh, I actually put that into my model because Wall Street has a really, really horrible forecasting record. They, I mean, ask yourself, do, do Wall Street see the 2008 financial crisis coming? Did they see the 2020 financial crisis coming? Did they see the pandemic coming? Do they ever get anything right? And the answer is no. Um, and by the way, if you go back to 2019, July 2019, my book, Aftermath, at the end, between pages 288 and 293, it specifically mentions pandemic. Um, it says a pandemic. I had two other scenarios. Three, I said each one has a certain probability. There's a hundred percent chance one of them will happen in the next three years. Turned out to be the pandemic. I spoke about armed. I spoke about social disorder, armed um, gangs in the streets, which is exactly what we have. So everything that's going on now was forecast in my book, my 2019 book, Aftermath. I have a new book coming out. Maybe we can talk about that. We'll tell you where we're going. But my point is, yeah, I, I have political preferences. I vote. Uh, but um, I don't always vote for the winner, but I don't uh, have much success if I can't forecast the winner. Or oh, just to be clear, before you jump in, Francis, whether you're right or wrong in your prediction, you're not getting paid by us either way. <laughs> oh, absolutely. This is a pleasure. I'm happy to do it. <laughs> I'm just joking. I'm just joking. I, I, I would say, uh, uh, yeah, we can go back and forth uh, and all that, but I would say the audience wins. Doug, Jim, I've got a theory on what I actually think Trump's going to win. My, my theory on, on, on why is because here we talk about a shy Tory vote, a shy conservative vote. People don't want to admit to voting conservative, having conservative values uh, because of the backlash that they will face in their public life and so on and so forth. But you can almost times that by 10 as to being a, a Trump voter in that not only do you face ostracization by your peers, your family, you also risk losing your job. So why would anybody admit in a poll or otherwise that they're going to vote for Trump? Do you think that's part of the reason why we see these polls so skewed towards Biden? It's part of the reason that the polls are heavily skewed, you're right. And that is part of the reason. Uh, I personally don't worry about it because I don't have a job. I mean, I'm just, <laughs> I'm a writer. You, <laughs> learn that. you can't fire me because I work independently. So I, I guess I can say what I want. Uh, but you're absolutely right. Uh, it's gone beyond, uh, oh, gee, maybe we'll have a, a heated water cooler discussion or 
couple of people at a cocktail party getting their tempers up. That's that's uh, par for the course, uh, but it's way beyond that. And you're absolutely right. People are being hauled before disciplinary committees at schools because they tweeted something innocuous, you know, pro-Trump, let's say, but not, uh, you know, QAnon or uh, Alex, you know, I'm not talking about that stuff. I'm just saying, you know, g- go Trump, you know, so- something very bland that being hauled before disciplinary committees because uh, other students feel endangered. You know, it's a snowflake factor, as we call it. Um, people are getting fired from jobs. They're being denied tenure. Their publications are not being picked up by, you know, the right journals, which is critical for a career path in academia and, and the law for that matter. So the consequences are, are, um, the punishments, if you will, for a point of view are, uh, more harsh than ever. And you're absolutely right. Why would you speak up? Uh, you just go to the voting booth and do your thing. Now, having said that, it's, uh, you know, Francis, you said it's sort of a factor of 10. You're, you're right about that. Let me give you, um, new data that's just literally coming out, uh, came out this morning and in, in recent days. Um, in addition to the registered voter who, um, is, is likely to vote, there's a distinction between registered and likely. Let's take the likely voter who's likely to vote, voted for Trump, going to vote for, uh, Trump this time, but maybe doesn't talk to a pollster, doesn't voice that opinion. So in addition to that, the Republicans are crushing the Democrats in terms of new registrants, just going door to door. We call it the ground game. You need uh, tens of thousands, if not more, volunteers. You, it's the most thankless job in politics, but it's one of the most powerful. You go door to door, knock on doors, introduce yourself. And if the person's not registered and they, they lean Trump or you have a reason to believe that, you get them registered. You, you give them the forms or, you know, hey, hop in my car, I'll take it down to town, whatever, whatever you need, or go to this website, et cetera. But it shows up because certain states, and including the key battleground states, actually allow you to register as a Republican or a Democrat or an independent. Now, some states don't do that. You just register, period. But some of the key states, including Pennsylvania and um, Arizona and uh, uh, Florida, you can actually indicate a preference. I'm, I'm a Republican. Uh, so they get the data. This is hard data. This is not speculation. And Republicans are beating Democrats two to one in new registered voters, in particular, white, non-college educated voters. Uh, that's the Trump base right there. Uh, you know, you can slice it and dice it any way you want. And uh, I think it's too bad we're so spun up about race, but there it is. Uh, but the white, non-college, the high school graduate, the high school dropout, the assembly line worker who never got any college, uh, white, and in particular men, uh, are the, the margins are a hundred thousand. Okay. So maybe, uh, one state was about, um, 198,000 Republicans signed up and about 95,000 Democrats signed up. So the margin was a hundred thousand, but these are states that Trump won by 10,000 votes. So in case of Pennsylvania, 44,000 votes. So when you see a hundred thousand or higher margin in registrants for your party among a demographic that is just all in for Trump, and that margin is bigger than Trump's margin of victory in 2016. That is a very good sign. The other thing that's even more interesting, uh, black women are, um, are registering Republican indicating that they want to vote for Trump. Now, is Trump going to get 50% of the black women? No. Uh, 40? No. 30? No. But he might get 10. And in 2016, black women went for Hillary Clinton 99 to 1. They got 99%. So the point is, if you even make it 90-10, let's say you add 10 points, 
Um, so what's that demographic? Uh, African-Americans are 12% of the population. Let's just say half men, half women. So you're talking about 6% of the population with a 10 percentage point increase. That's zero, 0. 0.6 uh, percentage points in your column. That's huge. I mean, when you're winning these states by two tenths or three tenths, and here's a demographic that's coming six tenths your way, that by itself is huge. So, so there are, without getting too geeky, maybe I already have, but uh, the point is there are things like that. And, and just, just to add one more footnote, when you register a new voter, someone who's never voted before, but they're like, whatever, they're fired up, they're angry or they're motivated, whatever, they're going to vote and, and you register them. They are not in the pollsters' databases because they've never voted before. Now, I excoriate the pollsters for looking at, you know, all adults or register. Those categories don't matter. You've got to look at likely voters. So the first thing you got to get right is uh, let's confine to likely voters. You need a big enough sample, which means 13. I've done, I've done polling for presidential candidates where I hired, you know, I'm not going to mention the name, but if I did, it would say, oh, yeah, that guy. Top, top pollsters. So I've worked behind the scenes, how you construct the questions, et cetera. And um, when you uh, you need about 1,300 respondents to have a good scientifically valid poll. Well, some of these are coming out. You read, you read the press releases. They had 800, 800 registered voters. I don't care about 800 registered voters. You know, half of them won't vote. And uh, 800 is too small of a sample. So that doesn't tell me very much. The other thing here ad nauseum and this goes back to where you started, you know, Biden's ahead 10 points or whatever. By the way, he's down to six today on the same polls. Um, those are national polls. We don't have national elections in the United States. That comes as news to a lot of people, but we don't. We have 50 state elections and the District of Columbia. So let's just throw that in. So 51 separate state elections plus D.C., and when you vote, you're not even voting for president. You're voting for electors who then go to Washington in December and pick the president. Uh, so that's how it works. I mean, it's fifth grade civics class. Uh, but the um, but the point being, national polls are meaningless. And let me give it. Let me be specific about that. In 2016, uh, Hillary Clinton got four million more votes than Donald Trump, just in the state of California, just California. Now Hillary beat. Trump by 3 million votes, which means Trump beat Hillary by a million votes in the rest of the country. You know, you got this big, big cluster of extra Democrats in California. Now, that will show up in a national poll. You should be, you know, they should be taking that into account. But you can only win California once. In other words, you can't, just because you got 4 million more votes, you don't get to win it twice. You win it once. So the point being, those three, those 4 million votes in the example I gave, skew the national polls, but they don't get you any electoral votes. They're just wasted. You, you could win with 50% plus one. That's all you need. Uh, so 50% plus 4 million is 4 million wasted votes. So so forget the national. Look at the battleground states. Look at Michigan, big deal, Pennsylvania, Florida, Ohio. Everyone knows what they are. Look at those individual polls. Uh, and even there, there are a lot of flaws, but that'll give you a better guide. And Jim, I'm, go I'm going to put the counterpoint to you that a lot of people are saying that Biden is going to romp to victory because people are sick and tired of Trump. They're sick and tired of his divisiveness. There's a rhetoric that he is racist and there's a backlash against him happening in America. Handled the coronavirus very badly, many people would say. Is that all you got? 
Um, <laughs> <laughs> here's the thing. They, they've been saying that for six years on a daily basis. So you're, you're right that people say that. You're right that the media acts as an amplifier and repeats it. And a lot of people have that view. You're absolutely right. The question is, is it enough to win? I mean, leave aside whether it's true. I, I, I would dispute the substance of it. Uh, Donald Trump uh, got the first Israeli-Arab peace deals in 25 years. Um, he, um, prior to COVID, COVID's a once in a hundred year, uh, you know, a, a setback. So you have to allow for that. But prior to that, um, uh, he had higher growth in the Obama administration, lower unemployment. Um, a lot of the job gains were to African Americans and Hispanics. Uh, but by the way, just to, just to prove the point, a poll came out recently, and this goes back to, 19, I believe, 1984, uh, Ronald Reagan was in a, it might have been 1980, Jimmy Carter, but it, it was Ronald Reagan early days, 80 or 84. Uh, and he was in a debate and he said, um, my fellow Americans, I want you to ask yourself a question. Are you better off today than you were four years ago? Now he knew the answer was no. We had, we had a bad recession, um, high interest rates, high inflation, high unemployment. So you, it was a rhetorical question in the sense that the answer was no, I'm not better off. But he knew that. But he asked the question. There was like, "How am I better off?" No. Why would I vote for this guy? So since then, the pollsters, uh, Gallup in particular, picked up on this. So every four years, they poll, "Are you better off than you were four years ago?" In a very recent poll, meaning in the last couple of days, fifty-six percent of the Americans said, "Yes, I'm better off than I was four years ago." Now, and and then they looked at other winners, not the losers, but the winners. Obama in 2012, uh, George W. Bush in 2008, et cetera. And their, their answer to the question was kind of 47, 48%, 46% in that range. They won with a below 50% yes answer to the question. And Trump's got 56% saying yes. So that's a very good sign. And then when Biden was asked about it, I mean, it, it's a sad case. I mean, basically, um, you know, you might want to check the, the, the supplies in your bomb shelter because we, we're electing, well, we're voting on a dementia sufferer. And that's not that's not a gratuitous um, claim. It's it's very clear. And, and a lot of physicians agree. Uh, just to be clear, I'm not a doctor and I haven't interviewed Joe Biden, but uh, that that's very clear to anyone who's paying attention. Um, so a reporter, you know, they don't, he doesn't answer many questions, but the reporter said, well, what do you think about this poll that says 56% of Americans say they're better off than they were four years ago? Biden said, well, they shouldn't vote for me. Now, I guess he couldn't do the math because if, 50, if, he's, if you tell 56% of the Americans not to vote for you, you lose. But Biden's reaction was, well, they shouldn't vote for me. By the way, that kind of angry response, that, that response function, which is more anger than rationality, is a symptom of Alzheimer's, early stage Alzheimer's. Uh, you know, he's, he's picked fights all through the primary. You call people, you know, you're a lying dog faced pony soldier. He calls some guy, oh, he was a heavyweight, but he said he called him fat. Probably meant to say fats, but he said fat. Um, he's challenging people to push up contests. I mean, these are all, this is erratic behavior of someone who is suffering mental decline, and that's very apparent. So, um, but my point is, data points like that are very favorable to Trump. One of our biggest supporters is Colby Hamilton, who runs a company called Peerham Logistics in the United States. And Colby's business partner, Heinze, is Colombian. And that means que ellos te pueden ayudar en inglés y en español. I don't know what that was. 
but I think it's the reason we need a big, beautiful wall. If you make products in one place and sell them at another, you need reliable transportation services at the right price. As a broker with hundreds of carrier options, Payham Logistics offers you LTL, truckload and parcel services in the United States. The great thing about Payham Logistics is that they're proactive and they will give you daily and sometimes even hourly updates on your transportation. What he's saying is they'll send you more emails than LinkedIn. And who wouldn't want that? Payham Logistics are offering trigonometry fans free supply chain analysis. All you've got to do is contact them and mention that you're coming from Trigonometry. Absolutely. The website is www.pairham-logistics.com. Hey, aren't you going to spell it for them? Oh yeah, that's a good point. I should do. It's www.pairham-logistics.com. The, the question that I wanted to ask, Jim, is do you think that American democracy is in a state of crisis? Because there is a poll that is frequently that is used to demonstrate the fact that I think it's 30% of people on either side, red and blue, say that they wouldn't respect the result of the election. And do you think that we're going to see social unrest on the streets if either candidate has a very, very marginal victory? Uh, the answer is yes. I actually wrote an article. Um, I have a newsletter, Strategic Intelligence, comes out monthly, and it's a it's a it's a big lift. Runs around five thousand words. That's a decent sized article. I wrote an article in February two thousand seventeen, literally just a week or so after Trump was sworn in as president, and mm-hmm. I said uh, I talked about the resistance, and I said they're coming at Trump, uh, and I talked about what I call the five arrows. Um, the first was, uh, you know, scandal, just get the guy so bogged down in scandals that the White House becomes dysfunctional and he can't do his job. Uh, two was the 25th Amendment, which allows for the cabinet and or a committee of Congress to remove the president from office, declare that he's mentally unfit, at which point the vice president becomes acting president. By the way, that will be used if Biden wins. Uh, Kamala Harris will be acting president by the, by next summer. Um, but, but, the, but anyway, they went after tw- Trump on the 25th Amendment. Third was impeachment. Um, and uh, fourth was uh, just, you know, force him to resign, make it so miserable, so relentless, so one-sided, so unfair that the guy would just resign. The fifth one, and I say it delicately, was assassination. But um, I've just written a book on, on the COVID pandemic, and uh, I reached the conclusion based on a lot of evidence that's in the book, so don't have to recite it now, that this virus did uh, come out of a laboratory. It was bioengineered and did come out of a laboratory. I can't go so far as to say it was it was weaponized and released on purpose. It probably was an accident. But if a virus, if a fatal virus came out of a Chinese lab and the president was struck with it and sidelined for a few days, that's pretty close to assassination. So my point being, every one of the arrows that I predicted has, in fact, been thrown at Trump, and they have all failed. Um, he's still, you know, he's still standing, and uh, and here we are coming down the home stretch. But they're they're still trying everything they can think of. Uh, Jim, let me try and use some of your past words on our show against you a little bit because uh, last time we had you on, you talked. We asked you uh, this would have been probably April, May, something like that, in the, in the middle of the pandemic, um, and uh, we asked you whether Trump would be reelected based on what was happening at the time, and you said if the economy is good, 
uh, there's a very strong chance. It's clear the economy is not going to be good, is it? Correct. Now, uh, saying that he'll get reelected if the economy is good is not the same as saying he won't be reelected if it's bad. True. So I'll leave it at that. Uh, the economy is not great. Um, but a lot of things, um, a lot of the decisive things happen at the margin. Uh, so is it getting better? Yes, it's not getting better. There's no V-shaped recovery. You know, Larry Kudlow, nice guy, but uh, he's the president, head of the National Economic Council. I say they should give him some pom-poms because you know, he's kind of a cheerleader for uh, whatever. Very nice guy, really atrocious forecasting record. So the idea that uh, we're having a V-shaped recovery, it's all good, is not true. And that there's empirical data behind that. In fact, everyone's worried about the second wave of the virus. Well, okay, that may happen. What we're seeing is a second wave of uh, terminations and furloughs, a second wave of redundancies. Yeah. The first wave was in March and April, obviously. Businesses shut down. They laid off employees. But some didn't. Some got uh, – the Congress enacted $3 trillion of um, support pro- primary support programs. One of them was the payroll protection plan. And basically said a small and medium-sized business could apply for a loan, get it, uh, and the size of the loan was based on your payroll. It was two and a half times your payroll. And if you used it for the intended purpose, which was payroll and rent was allowed, but if you used it for the intended purpose, the loan would be forgiven. There'd be some paperwork at the end. You'd have to prove you'd, you'd paid it or whatever. Well, that worked. It worked fairly well for anyone who could qualify for it. You had to jump through some hoops. Okay, but, but the, the theory was that when that came out in April and early May, it was a two and a half two and a half month bridge loan to August. And the, the view was that by August, the pandemic would be over, the economy would be recovering, restaurants would reopen, they'd hire back the people, et cetera. None of that happened. The reopening did not happen. It happened in fits and starts, but then no sooner did they reopen, they shut it down again. Um, when you go bankrupt, you don't reopen. It's, you know, there was wishful thinking to think that, uh, um, I mean, I, I live in a, a town, I'm, I'm in New Hampshire, we have, uh, it's it's kind of a restaurant magnet. We have about 100 really good restaurants in, in a small city. But um, what we're seeing now is not that they shut down and the reopening with outdoor seating and, you know, 25% capacity. We're seeing bankruptcies. We're seeing closures. Now, the entrepreneur may go somewhere else and someone else may step in and in the fullness of time. Maybe there'll be another restaurant, but not now. Those jobs are not coming back. And, and because... Everyone's used up their working capital to get this far. Now they are broke and there is no new plan. Thank you, Nancy Pelosi. And as a result, um, we're, we're getting a second wave of lifts. We're seeing it in airlines, restaurants, hotels, casinos, resorts, um, you know, nail salons, et cetera. And people look down their nose at some of those airlines is a big industry, but uh, people look down the nose at, you know, bars, restaurants and nail salons. They're like, ah, who cares? You got 10 employees in the aggregate. Those types of businesses are 45% of GDP and 50% of total employment. So maybe individually they're small, but in the aggregate, it's half the economy. And if you whack half the economy, you're not going to get good results. Now, having said all that, um, the stock market is close to new all-time highs. That's that's a separate story. People go, how could the economy be so poor if the stock market's going up? And there's a very simple answer, which is the, the stock market has nothing to do with the economy. It has to do with the um, market capitalization of like six names. You know, they, they call it the S&P 500. I call it the S&P 6. 
If you take, um, well, it is. If you take Microsoft, uh, Amazon, Netflix, uh, Apple, uh, Google, so-called Alphabet, and Facebook, those six stocks are 40% of the market cap of the S&P. So if they're doing fine, the index is doing fine. The other 494 stocks, however, are nowhere near all-time highs, and some of them are barely off the lows of March 23rd. So, um, and the ones I mentioned, by the way, are the least affected by the pandemic. You know, if you're digital, you're streaming, uh, how is Netflix affected by a virus? Well, it isn't. How is Amazon affected by a virus? Well, business is booming because people are afraid to go out. So I understand why those names are doing well, but in a cap-weighted index, you get into a um, recursive function where people bid up the stocks, uh, and then the price goes up, and what happens next? People buy them because the price went up, and then you bid them up some more. So, so you're in this feedback loop. Uh, they're going higher. The indices are going higher. The economy is not. But when you sit down at night and watch the nightly news or whatever, they say S&P you know, is near an all-time high, so it's, it sounds all good. And Jim... Isn't this virus, and in particular the lockdown response to this, just going to exacerbate the gap between rich and poor, particularly in countries like America? Yes, it already has. And I think that's a very, very good point. Uh, the uh, income inequality was pretty bad before this. It's worse now because the most vulnerable are the most affected. And I don't just mean in terms of getting the virus. Yeah, I mean, there are healthcare disparities in terms of how you get treated uh, if you get it, but independent of people getting the disease, just the fact that you've been fired or terminated or laid off. Um, and one of the things we're seeing, if you can, people are saving. Well, that makes sense. If you've just lost your job uh, and you got to pay rent or pay the mortgage or a car loan or a student loan or whatever it may be, uh, you're going to save more and spend less so you can meet those obligations. Even if you're better off uh, and you've kept your job, you're doing what economists call precautionary savings, which is you don't you're not stressed on a day to day basis, but you're like, well, maybe I'll be next. You know, maybe I'm getting fired. Maybe my business will go down, and so um, I will save more. Well, savings can be a good way to drive an economy, assuming you can find productive investments for it. Uh, you, you can route it to investment, and it's productive. That. You know, investment is part of GDP. Uh, but the problem is that has a five to 10 year payoff if you can find the projects, which is doubtful because there's no agreement between Democrats and Republicans on infrastructure spending. You know, where's the interstate highway system? Where's the moon landing? Where's, you know, where's the big, uh, big ticket items that are going to um, uh, absorb some of this investment? Well, they're not around right now, other than the military to some extent. Um, but, uh, if you're saving and you don't have productive investment, that comes at the expense of consumption. The U.S. economy is 70% driven by consumption. So what you have is a situation where maybe you have some investment, uh, but maybe you just have savings and liquidity trap, which best case has a 10-year payoff and worst case, not much payoff at all, at the expense of consumption, which is getting crushed immediately here and now. That's that's a recipe. I mean, I, I actually expect... Um, I distinguish, and we don't have to belabor this, but I distinguish between recessions and depressions. A recession is, you know, we all know what it is. It's two consecutive quarters of declining GDP with a couple, you know, maybe rising unemployment, a couple of bells and whistles. And we have the National Bureau of Economic Research, which is the official arbiter of when they start and stop. And they've already said it started in February, and I think that's right. Uh, a depression is different. A depression is a long-term uh, period of below-trend growth. You can actually have growth in a depression. The point is, 
it's below potential, it's below trend, and your debt's going up and your growth isn't going up enough. Um, so we're probably out of the recession. The recession hit in the second quarter. So first, you know, I'll just speak to the United States, but I think it's true generally of the world. First quarter down 5% because it really struck in March. It had a pretty good January and February, but March was bad enough to take it down 5%. Second quarter was down uh, 31% approximately. Uh, so there's your recession right there, two back-to-back quarters of declining growth. Third quarter, we won't have the numbers until I think October 28th. It looks like it's up 35%. Um, so people go, wait a second, Jim, you know, down 31%, up 35%. Aren't you back where you started? And the answer is no. Go back to your fifth grade math book. Uh, if, if you, if you start at a hundred, so a hundred percent of GDP, that's your baseline. You go down 30, yep. down 31%, you're 69. So you've got to apply the 35 to the 69. That's, uh, that's about 20 or so. It gets you up to 89. Uh, again, round numbers gets you up to 89. 89 is not 100. And then what about the fourth quarter? What if it's down again? What if it's 2%? You know, you're not getting out of this. Are you tired of using bulky old wallets that give you a bulge where you don't want it to be? If you are, Ridge wallets are an incredible solution. This is mine. Sleek. Look at the industrial look as well. It's great. You can have 12 cards in it and cash on the back with a clip or strap. They're incredible. We've got one for the whole team. Francis has one. I have one. We even got Anton one. But Anton's from Liverpool, so he flogged on the black market. Absolutely, he did. And it also gives you a lifetime guarantee, which means that you will probably, if you won't, only have one wallet for the rest of your life. The amazing thing about Ridge wallets, they are so confident in their product, and rightly so, that they will give you 45 days to test drive their product. That means you get the wallet, you use it, and if you don't like it, you can return it within 45 days. And because Ridge is such great guys, they're going to give you 10% off and free worldwide shipping and returns. To take advantage of this fantastic offer, go to ridge.com forward slash trigger that's ridge.com forward slash trigger and use our code which it will not surprise you is also trigger i I want to stay with trump just for the moment uh jim there are two other things that have happened since we last talked to you which will undoubtedly have a huge impact on the election the first one of them is the coronavirus as we talked earlier in the interview there is a perception among some people i would argue many people that donald trump has not handled it well uh, over 200 and something thousand Americans have died. A lot of people think, you know, his handling of it is, 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 in, was involved in that figure, in that very high death toll. And the other thing is we obviously had the protests in the wake of, uh, the George Floyd situation. We don't know exactly what happened there. Uh, but obviously, you know, visually it looked very bad. Uh, and there was protests and all over the world. Uh, there are riots uh, continuing across America on a daily basis. Uh, th- and that is obviously something that may drive a lot of people uh, into Trump's hands because they feel like they no longer have security and safety in their own lives. Right. Uh, so how will those two crucial elements play in this election? Well, the first one about Trump's handling of this um you first of all, the two hundred thousand dead. You know, this you know, Kamala Harris, who's kind of a lightweight, uh, is out there laying two hundred thousand dead at the feet of Donald Trump. It was your um, uh, Neil Ferguson who said there were going to be two million dead. Uh, you know, in the Lancet, uh, I think he's I think he's with Oxford, but he's with one of your top 
uh, universities and research labs and published in Lancet, which is the most prestigious. He's a, Jim, sorry to interrupt. He's at Imperial College London. But uh, for, for American viewers who may not be familiar, it turns out he was very busy doing some extracurricular activities on the side right. uh, instead of doing the work. Correct. So he's, he's been largely discredited. But I think you have to compare two, 200,000 dead is 200,000 too many. So I, we can stipulate that. But is it, oh, gee, good leadership would have been zero, but Trump was 200,000. So we will lay those fatalities at his feet. Or you were looking at maybe 2 million in some states of the world, 200,000 was a job well done. So that's that, that's the kind of uh, balance you need to understand this. And I don't see that from any of our politicians, but I lean a little bit to the category that this could have been a lot worse. Now, in, in, in case of Trump, I think he handled it Horribly, but let me explain why, because there, there are two facets to this. One is, what policies did you pursue? Were they effective? And could someone else have done a better job? That, that was a legitimate policy dispute. The second part is, what was your demeanor? What was your message? What was your, how did you act as a leader? We've never elected an immunologist as president. We've never had an epidemiologist in the White House. And no one should expect a president to be able to wave his hand and say, oh, the virus will go away. But Donald Trump is just the kind of guy who might say something like that. I mean, it's absurd. So if you look at actual policies, he banned travel from China in January, not March when the the hockey stick, you know, uh, hyperbolic growth started in January. Probably right there saved several hundred thousand lives because China was busy exporting the virus. People were flying out of Beijing, Shanghai, Wuhan on a daily basis going all over the world. This is why Italy got whacked because it was Fashion Week and the Chinese owned the, the a big chunk of the Italian fashion industry. And then those people came to New York, uh, et cetera. So, um, so, so the point is China was busy exporting it and Trump cut it off then in very short order, meaning in a matter of, um, well, probably four or five weeks in stages, ban travel from the UK, travel from the EU, uh, travel from, uh, close the Canadian border, the Canadian border, longest non-defended border in the world, closed, uh, and still not reopened, by the way. Um, so he did a lot of those things right. Now, we have Mario, sorry, um, Andrew Cuomo, the governor of New York, he's coming out doing d- daily press conferences, and he's screaming, he's hyper, he's, ventilators, 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 get me the ventilators, get me the ventilators. Trump used what we call the Defense Production Act, which now allows the president, basically through executive power, to order U.S. industries to produce certain uh, goods in a national emergency state of war, et cetera. A lot of these laws have been around since the 1950s because we were getting ready for a nuclear war. Um, and he got the ventilators. Guess what? Those ventilators are unopened. They're stacked up in warehouses. They don't work. It's a it's a really bad treatment. And there's no better example of that than your prime minister, Boris Johnson, because he was near death. He'd say the same thing himself. And his doctors had a choice. You could intubate, which means you put the you, that's the ventilator. You put the tube down your throat. That's called intubation. And it's like a it's like a lung machine that pumps your lungs. Or give him pure oxygen. The more the better. And intubation doesn't work because the problem is not your lungs. Your lungs work fine. The problem is the oxygen can't get to the blood cells in the lungs. Intubation is what you do when your lungs are not working. You gotta like pump this guy's lungs up. Uh, but oxygen is the answer because we get more oxygen in, in the lungs, more of it will get to the blood and that will keep you alive. They had a really close call. They said, we're not sure what we're going to do. They went with oxygen and Boris Johnson survived. Um, and that was the right decision. 
And but but he's he's like a one man case study of the fact that ventilators don't work. Uh, and so Trump got but Trump got the ventilators, and there's like I say they're still in boxes. So uh, this warps warp speed. We don't have a vaccine yet, but but even his worst critics are are amazed. They're like wow, the fact that you got you know uh, billions of dollars, billions of dollars to. 10 or more major drug companies all over the world and told them to work flat out and waived every impediment and waived every regulation. Yeah, safety and effectiveness still counts, but we're going to get all the other red tape out of the way. We don't have a vaccine yet. And we may not, by the way. I'm not uh, saying that the vaccine's a foregone conclusion, although Wall Street seems to think so. I'm not so sure. But my point is, there's nothing more you could have done. He did everything possible. So if we're talking about um, the ventilators, even though they don't work, he got them. He surged two hospital ships to um, New York and Los Angeles. He built a field hospital in, in the Javits Center. It's, it's just like, you know, it's a big convention center, um, et cetera. He, he Warp Speed got stuff going on the vaccine, the travel ban, put a lid on. He did all those things exactly right, exactly right. Now, what did he do wrong? Trump was handed an opportunity to maybe break the ranks of the top 10 best presidents in American history. He had an FDR moment. Remember, FDR was sworn in 1930, March 1933, at the depths of the Great, the Great Depression. There was a bank run, and, and he closed the banks. Imagine today, President just saying, all the banks are closed, I'll get back to you when they reopen. That's what FDR did. Uh, you know, um, confiscated gold, raised the, he did a lot of things, don't need to recite the FDR thing, but, but what he did above all, he inspired confidence. He said, gave a very famous speech, uh, and the memorable line, of course, is we have nothing to fear but fear itself. It was a very, it was a Churchillian moment. It was an FDR moment. Trump had that opportunity. What you should have done, any, any business manager knows this, any, any seasoned politician knows it. You deliver the worst news first. You say, you know what? This is bad. This is a pandemic. I haven't seen this in a hundred years. Sad to say, we may have, you know, a hundred thousand or two hundred thousand fatalities tragedy we may get them but we can beat this together working together as americans mobilizing industry with your help etc we can beat this that speech would have guaranteed him victory and would have put him in the history books he didn't give that speech he got out there uh, and uh, this is in uh, late march early april every day did these tedious tendentious two-hour press conferences where um Pardon my language, but he he got in a pissing match with lightweights like John Carl and and you know the the Washington press corps, you know that worked in 2016 and it, it worked in a non-crisis situation because everyone hates the press anyway. It wasn't at all the right thing. It, it wasn't. He didn't. He, he failed to rise to the occasion. So substantively, he did almost everything right. A few mistakes, but they were inevitable. No nobody nobody had this right. Nobody knew what we were dealing with, but given that uncertainty, he did a really good job substantively. Stylistically and from a leadership point of view, he was horrible. And if he loses, again, I'm, my forecast is that he'll win. But if he loses, I'll lay it at the feet of those press conferences. I'll go back to April and say that's where he lost because he failed to provide leadership. Okay. And then take me uh, through BLM, which has obviously had a huge impact on society over there as well. Sure. I call it a Bolshevik Lives Matter. They are a neo-Marxist organization. They have a platform. You can go to the website. This is not, you know, a conspiracy theory. We're not going to 4chan or anything. Just go to their website and look at their platform. Um, 
they endorse a policy that has killed more African Americans than slavery and lynching combined. Uh, there were three, approximately 3.1 million uh, American slaves uh, from Africa and their descendants during the period of slavery up to 1865, going back 1619 to 1835, about 3.1 million, 3.1 million slaves. And they didn't all die because of slavery. But if you said their lives were, you know, in effect, um, worse than impaired, uh, degraded, et cetera, call that 3.1 million victims and several hundred thousand from lynching. Um, they have, but Black Lives Matter supports uh, abortion, which has killed 20 million black children. So if Black Lives Matter, why are you supporting abortion? You say, well, abortion is black and white. It's not. Um, African-Americans are about 12% of the population, uh, and they're about 40% of all the abortions. So abortion is disproportionately a kind of black genocide. And if you think that's a stretch, I would say the biggest abortion provider in the United States is Planned Parenthood. Planned Parenthood was founded by Margaret Sanger. Uh, she was a public figure in the 1930s. Go read, go read what Margaret Sanger said. She was a racist and anti-Semite. Um, and said one of the reasons we need to have more abortions is so the black population doesn't get out of control. That's what she said. Again, you can look it up. Um, and so uh, there's your founder of Planned Parenthood. Those are your statistics in terms of abortion. And Black Lives Matter supports a policy of black genocide. So they're, they're frauds. Uh, they're frauds in terms of the public persona. Where they're not frauds is they say they're neo-Marxist, and they are. What, but what will be the impact of everything that's happened as a result of their protests uh, on the election, do you think? Uh, it's going to help Trump. Uh, it's, I talked to a guy, I won't mention his name, a couple of days ago, well-known figure, you know, top, top investor, multi-billion dollar portfolio. Um, and he called me, and he calls me from time to time for, you know, just to talk about the economy and portfolio allocations and stuff like that. Well, and he's a smart guy. He's very plugged in. He, if he calls me, he calls 50 other people. This guy is very plugged in. And he was anguished. He lives in Wisconsin. Uh, and he was, I don't understand what's going on. He said, I went to a, um, a drugstore. You know, we have CBS or Rite Aid, you know, different chains of drugstores. Um, and it was completely boarded up, but it was open for business. And I went inside, you know, to pick, get some prescription, uh, and he said there was an armed guard just in black. He wasn't a rioter. He was an armed guard with like bandoliers, uh, multiple weapons and extra ammunition, you know, standing guard. And he said, what is this? Is this America in 2020? And my answer is yes, it is. Get used to it. And then he went to another place and they were, they were in the process of burning it down. He said, I pulled up and there was a guy, you know, throwing papers in a trash can, lighting on fire and getting ready to, you know, break a window. And he said, I just drove away. Well, um, okay, that's Kenosha, that's Milwaukee, um, but the same is true in Portland, Seattle. Um, there's a, sh- a cold-blooded, point-blank shooting. Guy shot a, uh, a bodyguard for NBC, um, shot a guy in the head uh, in, in Denver. It's all on film. There's no dispute about what happened. I'll leave the, the judicial system to its devices. But um, this is going on all over. So, uh, And then Black Lives Matter I call it Bolshevik Lives Matter. They finally woke up and said, huh, why are we burning down our own cities? We've got to take this to the suburbs. And that's where the white people live, and not all of them, but, you know, that, that's where the um, 
the white upper middle class, they moved out. They're out in the suburbs. So let's go out in the suburbs. And they are. So all of a sudden, if you're in a ring of suburbs around a city that's burning and you think you're safe, you're not. This is all sunk in. People get it. Even when the networks don't cover it, I make the point that the local news does. Uh, and local news is local news. They have a lot less political bias. I won't say none, but they have less than the networks. And their job is to bring people news from their communities. Well, you may not see it on, on the networks, but you'll see it in local news Kenosha and, and Portland and Denver and Atlanta and L.A. and a lot of other places. People get it. They know that they know these are not protesters. There are some protesters out there and, you know, no one questions anybody's right to protest peacefully. Um, but that's a small part of what's going on. This is violent. I would call it insurrection. I would call it revolution. Um, and, uh, you know, before we went on the air, I said, I feel a little bit like, uh, you know, you're in uh, England and I'm in France and it's 1789 and I'm reporting from the front lines of the revolution. I mean, we have something going on here that's not too distant from a revolution. Uh, and there's only one way to deal with it, which is you have to crush it. Now, what, and people say to me, well, Jim, we had riots in 1968 and I, I remember them. I remember the riots in 1968. I've had a, a whiff of uh, tear gas, you know, just being in the wrong place at the, at the wrong time. Uh, and we had other riots along the way, Rodney King, I think 1992. Um, and he said, but these seem worse and what's different? I said, I'll tell you what's different. The rioters are always there. The Marxists are always there. The people who want to burn things down are always there. That's not new. They're just, they usually keep their heads down, but now they're, they're uh, asserting themselves. What's different is that the government authorities are not trying to stop it. Now, I remember in 1968, you had a, you had a, um, you know, if you had a Democratic mayor, uh, like Mayor Dale in Chicago and a Republican president like uh, Richard Nixon, uh, they worked together. They might have hated each other's guts the rest of the time. And maybe they didn't agree on much else. But Democratic mayors, Democratic governors, Republican presidents agreed that you cannot let riots get out of control, that you cannot let that grow and you have to do something about it. And they did with, with, the, with the National Guard or whatever it took. And they supported the police. That's not happening now, whether, you know, Teddy Boy Wheeler in the mayor of Portland or, uh, uh, you know, what's her name? Uh, Summer of Love. Uh, Jenny, uh, mayor of Seattle, um, mm. you know, Laurie Lightfoot, of course, Laurie Lightweight in Chicago. These people are incompetent, not that bright, and hate Trump. So to them, that uh, affects their outlook more than the fact that their cities are burning. So the reason this is different, the reason it's spreading, is that um, people on the ground are not stopping it. Well, there is a way to stop it, which is vote for Trump, and that's what's happening. And so you think that if, you've, uh, if people vote for Trump, that that would be a far more effective way of dealing with, as you called it, insurrection. Correct. Because, uh, you know, right now, one of the problems with Trump, and Trump created this problem himself, as usual. I always say this, this election is not between Trump and Biden. Biden is a, 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 an empty corn husk. Uh, this election is between, like, the good Trump and the bad Trump. So that's, that's how I think about it. Um, but uh, just, uh, you know, taking the, uh, you know, the bad Trump for a minute, because he, he is kind of his own, uh, his own worst enemy. Um, he uh, is willing to do something about this, but the mayors and the governors won't work with him. But if he is reelected, um, what's going to happen? He, Trump sets himself up as an excuse for, no, for not doing anything. Like, 
Uh, we have racism, blame Trump. We have riots, blame Trump. The economy's weak, blame Trump. Uh, yeah, okay, presidents get some of the blame. Uh, I understand that. But it, it, Trump has become an all-purpose excuse not to do your job, not to be an effective mayor, not to be an effective governor, um, not to suppress riots, not to, uh, you know, uh, arrest people, not to charge them, et cetera, because we just hate Trump. So let's just blame Trump. Well, okay, that'll get you so that'll only get you so far. It'll get you a lot of burned out real estate. But what's going to happen when Trump wins? Are you going to let your city burn for the next four years um, and blame Trump? Is that going to work? Are the voters going to support that? Or will you have, you know, maybe a moment of lucidity and say, you know what, we really got to put a lid on this. So uh, uh, now having said that, just to be clear, uh, we haven't really talked about this, but and my forecast is that Trump's going to win. He may not win on election day. No, he actually, when you, when say two in the morning, so the election's November 3rd, let's say it's November 4th. So two in the morning, three in the morning, we're all up late um, and watching the results come in and Trump's going to have big leads in, in a lot of places. They're not going to declare him the winner. They're not going to say the election's over because we're going to get something like, no one knows the exact number, but perhaps as many as 40 million mail-in ballots. That has never happened before. We've always had, you know, absentee ballots. I got one once. I knew I was going to be away. And I went to town hall. I got the ballot and handed it back over the counter. Um, yeah, that's that's all this. But this, these mail-in ballots, they're being mailed out uh, en masse, unsolicited. They're, you know, they'll, they'll put a, a mailbox with 100 bo- uh, ballots in the lobby of an apartment building and tell everyone to pick one up and send it back. Right. Uh, you know, somebody's not going to pick up 50 and fill them out and send them back. So they're going to have to count them. Now, some states have done this a lot and they're, they're good at it. I was at Oregon and Florida are two states that have had success with this. They kind of know what we're doing. Pennsylvania has never done this before, not to this extent. And Pennsylvania, the whole election may come down to Pennsylvania. Now, ever try opening uh, five million envelopes and counting them? It takes a while. Um, and how competent is government bureaucracy? Not very. So, and then state laws are uh, going back to what I said before about no national election. We have state elections. The laws vary. Some states say, "Okay, you can count the ballots as soon as they come in." Uh, in which case, they may have a pretty good count—not complete, but pretty good—on election night. Other states say you cannot open the first mail-in ballot until Election Day. So you're going to wake up on November 3rd with a pile of, you know, 10 million ballots or maybe 5 million, whatever. Uh, but those are, that's the order of magnitude we're talking about. Um, you're, not going to count, pardon me, you're not going to count 5 million ballots in one day. You're lucky to count it in a week. So, so we're going to be sitting around a week after the election waiting for the results from Pennsylvania, let's say, or Michigan. Meanwhile, if you look at the scoreboard, Trump's ahead because the, 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 it's, it's absolutely the case that the Democrats favor mail-in ballots and the Republicans favor going out on Election Day and casting a vote at the polling place. I don't know why we can't agree on anything in this country, but that's just the case. So those votes are counted immediately, the, the voting machine votes. So Trump's right. going to run up big margins in these places, and they're going to say, well, time out. We're not declaring him the winner because um, – we got all these mail-in ballots. So, and though they're predominantly Democrats. So what's going to happen is the, the lead is going to erode. His lead is going to keep going down. It doesn't mean he loses, but it's going to keep going down, down, down. 
there are both campaigns last time I checked had approximately 600 lawyers each. I dare say they have more today. Uh, and these are the top election lawyers and litigators in the country in every state. It's not like they're all in New York. They're, they're fanned out across the country. They're going to march into court, federal district court. They're going to get injunctions. They're going to get orders to impound the ballots. They're going to get, uh, they're going to get, they're going to try to extend state law. State law said, I mean, look, Americans can barely renew their driver's licenses without screwing it up. Uh, I include myself in that. Um, how, how are you going to vote? I mean, you have to check the boxes. Okay. You get that. But then some of them have signature requirements. Some of them do not. Some of them need witnesses. Some of them do not. And then when you fold up your ballot, you're going to stick in the envelope and mail it back. Well, some of them have what's called a security envelope. So you put the ballot in the security envelope and then you put that in the big envelope and then you mail it back so that when it's open, the security envelope goes to like a poll watcher or somebody more official. Uh, did they remember the security envelope? Uh, did they put the right postage on it? Uh, what does state law say about ballots that don't have security envelopes? Well, some of the laws say you discard them. They didn't follow the rules. Well, that's a lot of discards and they're heavily Democrat. Is some judge going to say, well, every vote counts. Sorry, forget the security envelope. Well, I'll appeal that to the Court of Appeals. And it's going to make its way to the Supreme Court. And guess what? We have a vacancy on the Supreme Court. And we have hearings this week to fill the vacancy. So this is right. Well, by the time this goes out, uh, Amy Coney Barrett may well be sitting on the court. She's likely to be uh, part of a six to three, people would argue, conservative majority. And then, of course, I guess where you're taking this is people are going to say her being on the court is illegitimate because she was appointed, rushed, quote unquote, rushed through. And then the election gets decided by uh, this court, the Supreme Court, with her on it. And people say the election result is illegitimate. Is that what you're saying? No. Uh, uh, I think okay. <laughs> um, it's interesting. Uh, that is what the Democrats are saying. Uh, I, To me, uh, her nomination, the confirmation hearings, the final vote, et cetera, are totally legitimate. She will take her seat uh, legitimately and be one of the greatest appointments in American history. No, sure, sure. I'm saying the argument will be from, from Democrats Correct. is the decision made by the Supreme Court is not legitimate right. because, because she was appointed at the last moment. We should have waited, blah, blah, blah. And, and so, so I guess I guess what I'm getting at, and this is something Francis and I have both talked about and have been very concerned about, is if it's a close election, which no doubt it will be, there will be a tremendous amount of bickering about whether it's actually a legitimate outcome or not. Well, let's make, okay, let's take that scenario, Constantine, and make it a little worse, because that seems to be what I specialize in. Um, <laughs> what uh, you're saying, uh, you know, it's a foregone conclusion, and perhaps by the time this uh, interview is released, she'll be seated. Don't assume that. Uh, remember, in Brett Kavanaugh, you remember all the controversy and the allegations sure. of gang rape and, uh, you know, et cetera, and Christine Blasey for you remember all that. Well, that did not happen during the confirmation hearings. That, after the confirmation hearing was done, uh, but before it went to the floor of the Senate, Diane Feinstein, you know, pulled a, pulled a letter out of her, uh, you know, desk drawer, which because we're sitting there the whole time. We have credible allegations of, you know, whatever. And then they, they blew it up after the hearing. So... Yeah. If you're a Democrat and your goal is to push this past the election day because you think the Democrats will win the Senate, um, how do we know they don't have, uh, you know, a, an ace up their sleeve in terms of some, you know, doesn't have to be credible, just defamatory 
or uh, detrimental release that they're not using now. They're saving until the days before the election for the sole purpose of trying to delegitimize the process and keep her off the bench. Now, she'll probably be on the bench. You're probably right. But I don't rule out that other scenario where you, you end up going to a court four four. But even if it is uh, a nine-person court and you get a 6-3 decision, you're absolutely right. That will uh, result in charges of the whole thing being illegitimate. I wish they did with George Bush. They never accepted the fact that George W. Bush was a legitimate president because he prevailed with a 5-4 Supreme Court decision on counting hanging chads in Florida. This will be worse. Great stuff. <laughs> Thank uh, you, Jim. Jim. We can always rely on you to cheer us up. Uh, that's why we love to have yeah, you. Yeah, I mean, people, people say I'm Mr. Doom and Gloom. I don't, I'm actually an optimist. I'm uh, pretty, uh, pretty happy person as I go through my day. But I don't, um, like I say, I don't get any points for wishful thinking. Um, and what I really offer is not Doom and Gloom, but hopefully good analysis. And above all, my concern is that I want people to see what's coming. And Jim, just before we finish, and we talk about what's coming. We have lockdowns happening all through Europe and the United States, and people seem to prioritize lockdowns and everybody locking down and adhering to these rules over the economy. And the economy seems to be something that a lot of people don't seem to understand. They're like, oh, it's just the economy, it doesn't matter. But in very real terms, in very clear terms, could you explain to laymen like me and Constantin? Speak for yourself, man. <laughs> <laughs> what actually happens when there is an economic crash? And what are we likely to see, particularly with this type of economic crash, which is unprecedented? Well, that's right. It's unprecedented. Um, it, it, you know, at the risk of uh, seeming like a, a book salesman, but I, I always say books are hard to write and harder to sell, but I would refer... Uh, readers to my new book. It's called uh, The New Great Depression, Winners and Losers in a Post-Pandemic World. Uh, it's available for pre-sale on Amazon coming out in January. But I spend a lot of time in the book going exactly on the issue uh, that you raised, Francis. And first of all, lockdowns don't work. Um, the evidence is uh, overwhelming. Uh, lockdowns are the first resort of politicians. And I'm sure we have this guy, Anthony Fauci. I mean, he's 80-something. He's running a major government agency. I mean, I, I sort of sympathize with millennials. Like, don't you baby boomers ever retire? Except he's, <laughs> he's older than the baby boom. Like, you know, enjoy your retirement while you're still running this bureaucracy and doing it poorly. Um, but uh, there's an old saying. You hear it a lot here on Wall Street. You know, if, if you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And if you're an immunologist, everything looks like a lockdown. It knows in the absence of a vaccine, they go, well, all we can do is lock it down. That's all we can do. That's not true. First of all, lockdowns don't work. There's good evidence for that. Secondly, um, who put him in charge? Uh, and this, I would fault Trump for this. I, it knows Trump in an emergency meeting or his uh, coronavirus task force, whatever, do you want an immunologist, an epidemiologist, and a virologist at the table? Absolutely. The best ones you can find, not necessarily uh, placeholders in the bureaucracy, Call Johns Hopkins or Harvard or MIT. Get the best Stanford. Get the best people you can find and give them a seat at the table. But do not put them in charge because they don't know anything about economics. This was exactly the point you were raising. And, and here's, the, here's the telling piece of data. More people have died because of the lockdown than have been saved 
due to the lockdown. And has the lockdown saved some lives? Probably. Yeah, I hard to quantify, but probably. But we know it has killed a lot of people. Fifty thousand excess suicides. I say excess. That means above the baseline. So there's a certain amount of suicides since the lockdowns began in March. Fifty thousand suicides. Um, spikes in uh, drug abuse. Spikes in alcohol abuse. Spikes in domestic violence. Spikes in deaths from heart attacks and cancer because people didn't go in to be treated because they were worried about COVID. Uh, anxiety, depression. And by the way, I have a whole chapter on the men- mental health aspects of this and how it sort of played into the riots, meaning did COVID cause the death of George Floyd? Of course not. I'm not saying that. But the death of George Floyd was a catalyst for, yes, some peaceful protests and a lot of illegitimate violent protests, but how, uh, not protests, but just violence, riots. How much of that was fed? by the anxiety and depression of people being cooped up for months. And by the way, all of a sudden, the political leaders said, well, yeah, we use social distance, social distancing, unless you're rioting, in which case we don't care. Oh, okay, that's, that's probably an invitation to go out and uh, start rioting. But um, so, yes, uh, the scientists were okay at coming up with ways of figuring out the benefits of the lockdown, but they were abysmal at considering the opportunity costs. In other words, did you get some benefit? Yeah. But what are the costs? No one, no one ever called a timeout and said, okay, we hear you. But what are the costs in anxiety, depression, suicide, alcohol, drugs, um, loss of skills, loss of networks, loss of, I mean, social interaction. Um, you know, this is a, this is a great format here, but I've been with you guys in London. It's a lot more fun doing it in person. Mm-hmm. We all know that. Well, uh, the people who are dying uh, uh, because of uh, the lockdowns, not to mention the 5,000 or more killed because of Governor Andrew Cuomo's orders to uh, requiring nursing homes and adult care facilities to take COVID patients. He said, you have to take these people. Okay, fine. You killed over 5,000 innocent nursing home and adult care facility patients who didn't have COVID because you put the infected in the nursing home instead of finding an alternative. That's what's been going on. So, do lockdowns work? No. Uh, by the way, one of my sources on that, uh, Dr. D.A. Henderson, uh, former dean of the Johns Hopkins uh, Bloomberg School of Public Health, um, the man credited, not a solo effort, but credited with leading the eradication of smallpox uh, in the 1970s and the winner of the Presidential Medal of Freedom, which is our highest civilian award. It's like the Congressional Medal of Honor, uh, wrote a paper in 2006, pre-COVID. And said lockdowns don't work. So this is not uh, something, you know, I pull off the web. The, the medical evidence is very clear. But we have destroyed the economy. We were very successful at that. Well, fantastic. And on that note, uh, that very happy note, Jim, uh, as always, uh, we, we should mention, of course, the, the new book. Uh, we've we've read all your previous books. Uh, you're a very prolific writer, and they're always fascinating, very interesting, a lot of detail, a lot of data. We recommend people go and pre-order the book. Uh, remind everybody what it's called and when it's coming out, Jim. Yeah, it's The New Great Depression, Winners and Losers in the Post-Pandemic World. Publication date, January 12th, but available now for pre-order on Amazon and Bar- Barnes & Noble. And we'll make sure to stick the link in the, in the in the description of this video and audio. So make sure you go and check that out. And with that, Jim, as you know, we've got one more question for you. Which is, what's the one thing we're not talking about, but we really should be? Well, deflation. Uh, the, that's the greatest economic danger we face um, because 
deflation increases the real value of debt. We have enough debt. Okay. So, but the thing is, I'm a big, uh, not just fan, but I always insist on converting data from nominal to real. Um, you know, this is where the bond bears have it all along. Nominal rates are low. They go, so the lowest rates in, in 50 years or whatever. Lowest nominal rates, yes. Not the lowest real rates. Real rates are still very high. Uh, and that's a product of, um, of deflation. Uh, and as we have disinflation now, we're going to go into deflation. That increases the real value of debt. It makes it impossible to get out. So, so the only way out, you can't grow your way out. Uh, it's too late for that. Uh, we're in a depression. Uh, you, there's no reason for the U.S. to default on this debt because we can print the money. So, you know, no reason to default, actually. Uh, there's only one way out, which is inflation. I'm not saying inflation is a good thing. I am saying it's the only way out, just mathematically. And, uh, but the Fed's been trying to get inflation for 12 years and they've failed. And they're going to continue to fail because they forgot how to do it. Uh, but in chapter uh, six and the conclusion of my book, I explain how you can get all the inflation you want in five minutes. And I expect to see that in the future, basically by um, devaluing the dollar against gold, not the euro. The dollar euro cross rate it goes up and down. And, you know, maybe if you're an importer, exporter, it matters. But all the currencies, dollar, euro, yen, Swiss franc, pound sterling, they're all in the same boat. They're in a life, but maybe some are taller, some are shorter, some are smarter, some are prettier, but they're all in the same boat. They're going to survive or die together. But where's the one objective metric that's not in the boat against which you can all devalue at the same time? There is only one, which is gold. Uh, two presidents did this, FDR and Richard Nixon. One did it on purpose and it worked. One did it by accident and it failed miserably. But it's like letting the genie out of the bottle, you know, good genie, bad genie. But the Fed doesn't know this. I'm explaining it to your audience, but the Fed doesn't know it. They're going to find out the hard way. But this implies a much higher price for gold in the years ahead. Jim, thank you so much for coming on the show. Fascinating as ever. And we are going to see what happens, whether Trump really will win the election or not. And thank you guys so much for watching the show. As ever, our shows are on Wednesday and Sundays. Those are our interviews. They go out at 7 p.m. UK time, always. We also have live streams constantly. And we do indeed. And they go out on Tuesday, Thursday, Friday and Saturday, 7 p.m. UK as well. And as we head off, thank you once again for watching. Make sure you go and follow, follow Jim on Twitter as well. We'll put the, the, his account in the bottom of the video. Uh, and we'll see you very soon. Take care, guys, and see you soon. Before you go, consider joining our exclusive member feed. As a member, you'll get ad-free and extended interviews. Click the membership link in the podcast description or find the exclusive episodes link on your podcast listening app to join us.